Chuck in your prayers. I appreciate that. And, uh, and now if you'd open up to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 13 to 17. We're going to try to finish the um, uh, chapter 2 uh, today. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. And if you bow your heads, we'll go to the Lord in, in prayer. Father, in Jesus' precious name, we thank you, Lord, for the people that are here right now. And we know, Lord, that we're not perfect people. We're not going to be perfect until your son returns and trans transforms us, changes us in the twinkling of an eye. We know, Lord, we're not a perfect church, but uh, we're your people, Lord, and we're assembling as many Christians are throughout the country and throughout the world. And so I just pray, Lord, that uh, you would be with us. I pray, Lord, that it would be your word that is proclaimed today, that I would not lead anyone astray. And so I pray that you cancel the man and you anoint me with your spirit uh, to speak through me, to give me clarity of thought, to help me to articulate uh, what this, this passage means. And I pray, Lord, that uh, you would not only, through the power of the Holy Spirit, give us understanding of this passage, but give us the wisdom and the power to apply it to our lives so we can be pleasing in your sight. Lord, uh, with uh, Thanksgiving coming up, I pray that everybody here at TBF would have a good Thanksgiving, that they'd be with their loved ones, or some people like being alone, that's fine, but I just pray, Lord, that no one would feel lonely. No one would feel abandoned. No one would feel hurt. But they not only have a day of great day of thanksgiving, giving the thanks to you for all the good stuff you've given us, especially salvation. But I pray, Lord, that um, every day would be thanksgiving. We would give thanks in all things. For you're a good God. We deserve hell. You've given us heaven. May we be forever grateful. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. All right, so 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, if, if my understanding uh, of this book and of the Bible is correct, you know, Paul's just telling them, hey, you know, you're suffering now, but it's actually going to get worse. And so I believe that the, the church will go through the tribulation. And when you're preaching to people about suffering, not just the suffering they're going through, but the suffering that is to come. Uh, it just does something to a pastor. It does something to a shepherd to where he can look at his flock, the flock that the Lord's entrusted to him, and he could look at them with, with thanksgiving, being thankful. He could pray that God comforts them, but you become incredibly grateful for the people it take time out of their busy schedule to gather together and to fellowship with them. And so that's what Paul does. He told them all about it. It's like, guys, look, you think the day of the Lord is about to come? You think Jesus is about to come? The apostasy has got to come first, the falling away of the church. And then the Antichrist has to be revealed. And when Jesus comes, he's going to defeat the Antichrist. So there's even more suffering. Okay? Yet Paul wants them to have comfort. And Paul is grateful 
for them, that they've already been willing to suffer. We need American church. We don't even know what suffering is, to be honest with you. Um, and we've got to be ready. We're not, we're not special. We think, you know, oh, we're so special. No, we're not special. You got Christians all over this world throughout the centuries that have been persecuted for their faith. And so Paul says, you know, persecution is coming. And then in verse 13, he says that he's obligated to give thanks for the Thessalonian believers. Verse 13, but we are bound, we are obligated to give thanks to God always for you. Brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. Okay, so Paul says, man, we, we are obligated to give thanks for you. Now, he's, he's speaking as a shepherd. He's speaking as the guy who planted the church. He was only there for three weeks, and he planted the church, and then he's been following up with, with letters. This is the second letter that he wrote to them. And, um, but he says, I always give thanks for you. You know, Paul's the same guy who told us in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. He's like, how do you do that? You got to go to sleep. You got to eat. You got to work. And what I do is I just kind of, I try to do what Daniel did, try to wake up in the morning praying, try to pray maybe in the middle of the day during lunch, and then try to pray before I go to sleep. And then maybe in the middle, I'll have an attitude of prayer, okay? But Paul would pray regularly, consistently, passionately, persistently, boldly. But like he says in Philippians Chapter 4, verses 6 through 9, he would pray with thanksgiving. No matter how bad things are get, things get, you can pray with thanksgiving. Okay? Let's say you were going to be executed for preaching the gospel in 10 minutes. You'd say, well, what's, the, what's there to be thankful for? You'd be thankful you're going to heaven. We deserve, you know, it's like I said a few weeks ago, and I'm not talking, it was a, did God instituted human government to bring justice, to bring his justice down. And look, look, look how bad that's gotten nowadays. This whole governments are demonic now. But, but when I said that I don't want justice, I want grace. What I'm talking about is I don't want what I deserve. It's a place called Gehenna. It's a place of eternal conscious torment. I don't want that. I want God's grace. And it only comes through faith in Jesus, but no matter how bad things get, the Thessalonians were suffering and Paul's saying, guys, the day of the Lord is not ready to come. It's got to get way worse than this before it's going to come. Yet, we have reason to be thankful. Paul, I mean, he, he was getting beat up more than any of the, the Thessalonians were getting beat up. Yet, he could always pray without ceasing and with thanksgiving. He thanks God for the Thessalonian believers. I thank God daily for the people that come to Trinity Bible Fellowship. I thank God daily for the, the kids that come to Cross Point, the high school that I teach at. Now I'm thanking God for the guys I get to meet at the Kids Have Combat Sports when I go boxing. And some of them are believers, some of them are not believers, but I get a chance. It's amazing how uh, guys who don't want you to preach at them if uh, if you let them punch you a couple times, then they'll let you. They don't mind that you start preaching. And uh, but whatever the case, we got to be thankful. There's people in your ministry 
that you need to be thankful for? Do we, do we regularly thank God for our brothers and sisters in Christ? If the answer is no, it's like shame on you, shame on me. We need to be grateful for each other. And some of us are harder to be thankful for than others, you know. Every once in a while, it's like, okay, I'm supposed to thank God for my Christian brother, but boy, that guy gets under my skin. And, um, well, some of us are obnoxious, not easy to get along with. Yeah, Jesus loves us. So what right do we have to not accept one another? But he would pray without ceasing. He felt obligated to always give thanks for those he ministered to, and that included the Thessalonian believers. I think they had a special place in his heart. Three weeks, and they got it right. He was with the Corinthians for like two years, and those guys were still messed up. These guys got it right in, th in three weeks. If anything, they got too anxious about the return of the Lord, and then some of them were quitting work. We'll find out more about that in, in chapter 3. But he always prays without ceasing because God chose them from the beginning. You realize all believers fit into God's eternal plan. When you get saved, when I got saved, when Phil Fernandez got saved, the angels in the Bible says the angels in heaven rejoiced. They freaked out. They rejoiced. They probably didn't even expect it. It didn't fool God. It didn't fool God before he even created the universe. He knew a half Portuguese, half Italian from Jersey. That's this guy in New Jersey was going to come to him. Um, through the power of the Holy Spirit. He knew about you. It was all in God's plan. And God chose them for salvation and through the sanctification by the Spirit. Now he mentions the Holy Spirit sanctifying. When he sanctified, we're saints. That means we're set apart. To sanctify means to set apart. So... Paul's saying, I'm, look, I'm obligated to give thanks for the Thessalonian believers. These guys are suffering and everything, but God chose them for salvation in eternity before he created anything, and he set them apart by the power of spirit. You know, there are a few times where I almost died um, before I reached age 21 and came to Christ when I was in the Marine Corps. And uh, I, I think God's angels had something to do with that, saying, you know what, we got to keep this guy alive at least until he comes to Christ. He's not scheduled to come to Christ till age 21. And, um, and it's the same with all of us. So many different factors, so many different things that have occurred in our lives, and, but God set us apart. He set us apart in eternity before anything was created, uh, set us apart through the power of the Holy Spirit and elected us for salvation and it says, and by belief in the truth. And we're not going to spend time right now trying to reconcile divine sovereignty and human free will. But I believe that God is sovereign and that he sovereignly chose those who would freely come to the Son under heavy divine persuasion. I think C.S. Lewis was a great defender of free will, yet he still said that he came kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God. Some of us, though, God, God could just dangle us on a string over the flames of hell. And we still say no. Okay? And um, God, you know, God took me out of Jersey and put me in the Marine Corps and gave me the most boring duty on planet Earth, guarding nuclear weapons. Nobody messes with Marines guarding nukes. And uh, I thought I was going to have a breakdown. But God knew he had to take me out of my comfort zone because I was set apart 
by the Holy Spirit for salvation, just as you were if you're trusting in Jesus for salvation. Don't, you know, I believe we get it. There's a, the Holy Spirit persuades us, but I believe we make a free choice, but don't think you could have done it all on your own. The Holy Spirit had to put you in certain circumstances and work upon your hardened heart because none of us seek him. When Adam sinned, Adam didn't say, God, where are you? Adam was hiding in the bushes. And God said, Adam, where are you? Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost because we weren't looking for him. He had to come looking for us. And so God chose them in, the, in eternity past for salvation, set them apart by the work of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the one true God, it's three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one being, one God, but three persons. And it was by belief in the truth and and um, and so they are brothers in Christ, and and loved by the Lord, beloved brethren, beloved by the Lord. You know, I might have a hard time getting along with you. You might have a hard time getting along with me. But if we're beloved by the Lord, let's follow Jesus' example. Let's love one another. Um, John could even say, the world will know that you're my disciples when you have love for one another. Not when you're real smart. Not when you're real fancy. Not when you get a big church building. The Lord will know that you're true disciples of Jesus when you have love for one another. So here Paul is, he felt obligated to give thanks for the Thessalonian believers. Verse 14, to which... He called you by our gospel, the good news of salvation through Jesus, to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? So God called the Thessalonians, as he calls all believers, by the gospel. Now, to them, it was the gospel preached by Paul. And so it's like God's calling them. He's elected them to salvation. He's calling them. The Holy Spirit is, is working on their hearts, and then God sets them apart to hear the good news of salvation through faith in Jesus through uh, the Apostle Paul and his preaching. And the goal is not salvation. When God calls you to the gospel, it's not just salvation, okay, initial salvation, justification. It's for all the way through glorification, okay? So I got some theological terms I'm going to be sharing with you, but first, let's look, what is the gospel? How does Paul define the gospel? We often confuse the gospel um, with our response to the gospel. The gospel is not um, salvation by God's grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus alone. That's what we do to accept the gospel. We trust in Jesus for salvation. But in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 4, Paul defines what the gospel is. So 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, the good news, which I preached to you. Past tense. He planted the church four years early, about 51 A.D. And, um, of course, Jesus was crucified approximately 30 A.D. 
So he says, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which you, uh, which also you received and in which you stand, and by which also you are saved. If you hold fast, that's going to be an important phrase in this passage when we get to verse 15 in, in 2 Thessalonians, by which you are also saved, you're saved by the gospel. If you hold fast that word, the gospel, which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain, unless it was superficial faith and you really didn't believe, trust in Jesus for salvation from the heart. And then he explains what the gospel is by quoting an ancient creed. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. So here's the gospel, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he was then seen by or appeared to Peter, then the 12, and it goes on the list of appearances. So that the gospel message is actually... Christ, well, who is Christ? He's God the Son become a man. He died on the cross for our sins, and it was all in accordance with the Old Testament scriptures, which predicted it. He died on the cross for our sins, was buried, rose again, and appeared to many. That's the good news. Now, when we accept the good news by then looking at the work of Christ and the person of Christ, who is God the Son become a man, who died on the cross for our sins, rose from the dead to conquer death for us, we then trust in him for salvation. So we often confuse the gospel with our the proper response to the gospel. That's why I did the, the, the gospel diagram, and from that, the 10 gospel truths, that's what God did, okay? There's only one God, God is three persons, the Father loved the world, sent his Son, the Son became a man, died on the cross for our sins, rose from the dead to conquer death for us, appeared to many, um, ascended to heaven and promised to return. That is the gospel, okay? And so you get the 10 gospel truths from the gospel diagram, and then comes the threefold response, A, B, C. Admit you are a sinner, you cannot save yourself, okay? You got to acknowledge the bad news before you can come to the good news. Admit you're a sinner, you cannot save yourself, Believe in Jesus alone for salvation. Not Jesus plus Sigmund Freud. Jesus plus the law. Jesus plus the church. You believe in Jesus alone for salvation. So if you, if you know and accept the gospel and then you acknowledge you're a sinner, you can't save yourself, and you trust in Jesus alone for salvation, then you're saved. Then comes point C. Then it's our jobs to commit to Jesus and his word for daily living, okay? A lot of people, I trust in Jesus when I was six. I don't need to go to church. You know, it's just like, yeah, you're not going to fellowship with other people. Uh, I trust in Jesus for salvation when I was 15, so it's okay if I get drunk all the time and party and sin. And But it's like, no, no, no. If you're trusting in Jesus for salvation and acknowledging and worshiping him as your God and Savior, and you're worshiping him from the heart, and the Holy Spirit's going to start cleansing you from within so that James says faith without works is dead. True saving faith will produce good works. And so the gospel is the good news of salvation through faith in Jesus. It's the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And if you trust in the person and the work of Christ, you'll be saved. Now, he says that the goal uh, of being called by the gospel, the goal is not just initial salvation, which is justification. The goal is to obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so what is Paul talking about there? You could take, by the way, you could take one sentence by Paul, and Paul, you know, like Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14 is all one sentence in the Greek. You could take one sentence by Paul and write four books on it, okay? He'll throw in an adjective. Okay, there's a book. And, um, um, but obtaining the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is that talking about? Look at Romans chapter 3. And this will give us some insight into that. Romans chapter 3. Verses 20 through 23. You know, after getting done, you know, Paul got done saying a little earlier in verse 10, there is none righteous, no, not one. Nobody seeks after God. Um, and then he says this in verses 20 through 23. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. None of us are going to be declared righteous by God by trying to obey the law. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law shows us God's holy standards. We try to obey it in our own strength. We fall short. So the law reveals that God is holy and we're not. Okay. So the law shows us our need for a savior, becomes a substitute teacher to lead us to Christ. Okay. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God, that's what you need to get into heaven. You need the righteousness of God and we can't earn it. Our own righteousness is filthy rags before the Lord, Isaiah says. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. That's the Old Testament. Even the righteousness of God through works? No, through faith in Jesus Christ and to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of what? Of the glory of God. See, God created everything to glorify him. But with fallen angels and fallen humans, which is all humans except King Jesus, who is fully God but also is fully man, he became one of us, but without sin, with fallen humans, we fall short of the way we're supposed to bring glory to God. We're supposed to reflect the glory of God. Another way of saying this, and Paul deals with this theme in the book of Romans as well, is we were created in the image of God. As image bearers of God, we reflect God's glory. And guess what? We distorted that image when we fell in the garden. We don't. If we were God creators to glorify him to this level, obviously we don't have the full glory of God. Only God does. We fall short of that. Okay? And so guess what? We need to be glorified. We also need the image of God restored in us. And so look at uh, Romans 8. Romans 8, 28 through 30. Romans 8, 28 through 30. And Paul says this, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So God works everything, even the bad stuff. God works it for our good, okay? You could sin. God will work it for your good, but that's the hard way to get good results. Wouldn't it be better if we cooperate with God and uh, not have to learn the hard way, okay? But God works all things for those who love God. Verse 29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined 
to be conformed to what? The image of his son. You see, the Bible says in Colossians chapter 1 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In other words, when God the Son became a man, he perfectly represented the Father. He could say, I and the Father are one. He who has seen me has seen the Father. And so what we have is by being conformed into the image of God's Son, we're once again being conformed to the image. It's the, Im it's the image of God created in God's image. Then we fell and marred and distorted the image of God and man. But then that's going to be restored through King Jesus when we're conformed into his image. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Verse 30, moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Now, Paul's talking about that same thing. God chose us and called us in eternity past, okay? But he called us to what? Glorification. That's the finish line. See, salvation in uh, God's word is not um, signing you up for a marathon so you start a marathon. Salvation means you, God's word is at work in you to complete the marathon. So moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, he, these he also glorified. Okay? So we're going to have to look at some terms here. And election. Election means before God created anything, God chose who is going to be saved. Okay? Now, I believe in free will. We have Christian brothers and sisters that agree with me on this. And, but I believe that we have free will but God in eternity chose to save those who under divine persuasion and, and circumstances that God would bring about, he chose in eternity past to save those who would freely accept his son. Okay? And, um, and so uh, that's election. Okay? So when, when I got saved and the angels rejoiced, God was probably like, yeah, have a good time, guys, but, you know, I knew this was going to happen, okay? And, um, and God also knew that the work of the Holy Spirit in my life, without that, it would not have happened, okay? And, um, but that's election. Then the moment you first believe in Jesus, Paul defines that as, as being made righteous. It's when we're declared righteous by God the moment we first believe. Now, don't be confused with James chapter 2. James doesn't use Paul's terminology. When Paul uses the word justification, it means to be proven righteous. So James could say that uh, Isaac, I mean that uh, Abraham was justified, proven righteous when he was willing to sacrifice his teenage son, um, Isaac, to God, the promised child. Of course, God stopped him there. Paul says that Abraham was justified, declared righteous by God about 15 years earlier. The same term, but they're defining it differently. The way Paul defines justification, the moment you're declared righteous by God, the moment you first believe. So when I first, and when you first trusted in Jesus for salvation, 
You were saved and you were declared. You had that ticket to heaven, the righteousness of God. You got it. Jesus' righteousness is credited to your account. Are you righteous? No, but God declares you righteous, okay? So it's like you're on trial and they say, okay, here's the charges. And the judge says, guilty. And then you beg the judge for mercy and he says, okay, you're justified, declared righteous. And then you're like, oh, so I'm innocent? No, you're guilty of sin, but I declared you righteous. It's a judicial declaration of righteousness. Then we enter into the, after being justified, the sanctification process. And that's where God progressively sets us apart more and more for his holy purposes. Okay? And um, some of us, it takes longer than others. Um. I'm a, the, the day I got saved, I pretty much stopped stopped hitting people, stopped doing other things, and um, um, but I still had a foul mouth the first two years after getting saved. I was a Marine, and um, God had me ministering to Marines, who were the only guys who didn't even know that cursing was a sin, and um, and you know you don't go to you don't go to bed Attila the Hun and um, and wake up Billy Graham, okay? Sanctification pride. It doesn't have to be as slow as we make it, too. We play tug of war with God all the time. Amazing thing, too, when God looks at Phil Fernandez, he doesn't see the old Phil Fernandez. The old Phil Fernandez is dead. That loser is dead. He sees the new creation in Christ, Phil Fernandez. Now, guess what? I keep bringing back the old guy. I keep bringing back the dead guy. And God just shakes his head and says, man, that's not, he thinks that's him, but that's not him. And Satan, they, Satan will whisper in your ears, try to convince you you're still the old guy you used to be. You know, he'll tell you, I, he'll, he'll tell you, God didn't call you to that ministry. You're still the loser you used to be. And uh, and don't listen to the evil one. Because the Bible says we're no longer slaves to sin. Now we're slaves to righteousness, Romans 6, 17, and 18. So stop acting like a slave to sin. You don't have to obey sin anymore. You're a slave to righteousness and um, a new creation in Christ. And so the sanctification process where God is progressively setting us more and more apart for his holy purposes. And then the final stage of sanctification is called glorification, when the total presence of sin will be removed from you, okay? Do you know if you died right now and your spirit went to be with the Lord, you wouldn't bring any sinfulness with you, yet you would not yet be glorified? Because glorification, God wants to save the whole man, body, soul, and spirit. And so until your dead body, which someday, unless Jesus returns first, is going to be rotten in the grave, until he raises that up and then gives immortality to that mortal body and glorifies that body, God is still not yet complete with the work he started in you. Okay? And so, uh, so when Paul tells them that the goal of the gospel is obtaining the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's like, again, what's the, the Great Commission is not 
you know, go therefore and make baby Christians of all nations. No, it's go make disciples of all nations. The goal is not just to lead people to Christ, okay, but to help bring them about to maturity. And the full goal of God is eventual glorification. We'll be glorified and we'll fully bear the image of God the way we were intended to. We're not going to be God, but we're going to reflect the image of God to the degree that God called us to. Now look at Romans 8, 18, and then we'll get right back into our, our passage in 2 Thessalonians 2 here. But Romans 8, verse 18, and this has a big meaning because the Thessalonians, from the day Paul went there and preached, they were getting beat up. They were getting persecuted. They were getting knocked around, okay? And so what Paul tells the Romans, this is the same message. He's, Paul, he, see, Paul's saying, don't focus. I, Paul, I just got whooped. Don't focus on your persecu persecution. Focus on your future glory. You know, th things are changing. When I look at the people in this church, when I look at my students at Crosspoint, I think I know enough about the Bible and current events to know what's coming down. And sometimes I'm reduced to, to tears. I used to preach and pastor this church to try to teach people how to live for Jesus. Now I feel like it's my job to teach people how to suffer and die for Jesus. And I need help on that because we've been so comfortable and so spoiled. But what does Paul say? Romans 8, 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And that's when Jesus returns. All creation groans until that point. And then when Jesus returns, the uh, sons of God, the sons and daughters of God, the children of God will be manifested. You know, right now people say, I don't think you Christians have the truth. I think the Buddhists are right. I think the Muslims are right. I think so-and-so is right. So, well, the day is going to come when it's going to be manifest who the true children of God are. And when Jesus takes a stand upon the earth, his children are going to be glorified. Okay? And the sufferings, no matter how bad it gets, and believe me, we're just at the tip of the iceberg right now here in America. When this suffering comes down, it's going to be brutal, the suffering and persecution. But that suffering is going to be nothing when compared. Temporary suffering is nothing when compared to an eternity of glory, which we'll receive when Jesus returns. Okay? And that might sound like a whole sermon. You know, we're just, we're, right, we're just pointing to some phrases that Paul is using. That's why Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 3, warned believers, watch out when untaught, unlearned men um, preach Paul's writings, because Paul's writings can be, can be complex and all. But, um, you know, when you get saved, thank, thank Jesus big time, but don't say, thank you, Jesus. Now you're done with me. <laughs> you got a long way to go. You can, you can live to be 95 years old and preaching Jesus every day and obeying his word, and God's still got a long way to go with you. Okay? And, um, 
And so now back in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul says that they're obligated to give thanks for the Thessalonian believers. We're obligated to thank God for, for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul says God called them by the gospel that Paul preached. We're called by the gospel that was preached by the apostles and continues to be preached throughout the generations. And then key passage here, verse 15, therefore stand fast and hold the traditions taught to the Thessalonians. Verse 15, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. So he's not promised them a rose garden. He's not saying, don't worry, things are going to get bad. He's saying, look, things are going to get way worse. You think they're bad now. Things are going to get bad. But I'm telling you, stand fast and hold the traditions that were taught to you. Okay? Stand firm in the faith. Um, that means true doctrine, true teachings, and right behavior. Okay? Now, we've got a handout. I don't know if we'll get a chance today or not, but I got to, yeah, we, we might be able to just run through it. What, what were those things, the traditions taught to us by the apostles? Well, they're in the New Testament now. First and second Thessalonians were two of Paul's three earliest letters. There wasn't a whole lot of New Testament stuff, so it was like oral traditions, the teachings of the apostles. And then as Paul started writing more letters, I think the Gospels, I actually think the Gospels, three of the four were already written by this point. I hold to the way the Bible-believing church in America and Europe used to date, give early dates to the Gospels before Charles Darwin and his influence on historical criticism of the Scriptures and the seminaries that train our pastors. And... Um, it's just re the reason why Paul doesn't write a whole gospel. They were out there already, and people had read them. I think the people he ministered to read Luke's gospel, which he quotes from. Um, so, uh, but whatever the case, stand firm in the faith, the true doctrine and right behavior. I mean, in Acts 2, 42, the early church, Acts 2, verse 42, on the Feast of Pentecost, the church was, was, was rocking. The church was being everything they were supposed to be. And it says, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, the teachings of the apostles, and fellowship. They fellowship with each other. In breaking of bread, that included the Lord's Supper plus potlucks, like one we're going to have today, and in prayers. Okay? I'm telling you, if you go into a church that doesn't continue steadfastly, in the apostles' teachings, that doesn't stand fast and hold the teachings of the apostles, that doesn't fellowship, that doesn't break bread together, that aren't a people of prayer, it's time to find a new church, okay? And um, it's amazing. We judge churches today by, I don't even know where the report card comes from. It doesn't come from the Bible. But you want to look at Acts chapter 2, maybe verses 38 through 47, That'll tell you the characteristics of a New Testament church, okay? And that's what we seek to be. Are we perfect? No, we're not perfect. We're not perfect at all. And um, uh, yeah, no, no Christian is perfect. 
Till Jesus is done with us, no church is perfect. But uh, but therefore, stand fast. He, he's saying you're going through sufferings. I'm not going to make any promises to you that aren't true. The sufferings are going to get worse. Um, but God has called you to what? Eternal suffering? No, that's the that's the other side. God's called you to eternal glory. Therefore, because of that, stand firm in the faith. Live your life built on the teachings of the apostles. We got to stop compromising. We got to stop compromising to the world and and taking the wisdom of the world to explain away Bible doctrine. Okay, and this is going on in our seminaries. The professors, you know, right now the Evangelical Theological Society is entertaining. You know, was there really a historical Adam and Eve? They're already okay with theistic evolution, that God used evolution. They're okay with saying that the apostles are confused about certain details in the Gospels. They're okay with taking some biblical miracles and saying maybe they were just metaphors, just symbolic. And these are the guys that are training our future pastors. So I took a few hits this week by posting something about it, and I got some friends who think I'm an intolerant bigot. Um, they never called me a Nazi in print because I didn't uh, uh, I didn't write vital issues until after the book was published, where a Christian scholar named everybody else because of their previous writings. And um, but I tell you though, if we're not going to stand for God's word as being true, how are we going to stand on the doctrine of the apostles? And they so stand firm in the faith. And then Paul says that, look, me, Timothy, Silas, we taught you by the spoken word. That's when uh, um, when they had visited them for three weeks until they had to flee because of the persecution, but also by letters in 1 Thessalonians and now 2 Thessalonians. We also need to stand firm uh, in the faith. You know, Jude 3 we're to contend, we're commanded to contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Okay? Um, look, look at 2 Timothy. Paul's about to die. He's about to be executed. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. Paul told the Thessalonians, like 15, 16 years earlier, stand fast. Well, Paul was not a hypocrite. He did it himself. He stood fast. And he says, in fact, in verse 6, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure is at hand. He's saying, he's saying Timothy, you got to be strong and courageous, Timothy, because I'm, I'm, I'm leaving planet Earth here real soon. They're going to kill me. And Paul said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. That's what Paul wanted for the Thessalonians. That's what God wants for us, that we stand fast and hold the traditions taught to us by the apostles and the prophets and God's word. Okay? And, you know, we can. you want to be popular? You want to be popular? Start watering down God's word. You want to be popular? You become woke. You want to be popular, just look at the media and social media, and you just go that. But as for me and my house, says Joshua, we're going to serve the Lord, okay? 
we got to decide which side we're on, okay? This, it's getting hot in the kitchen. The stuff is coming down. And we need the same encouragement that the Thessalonians received. Um, we also need to stand firm in the faith. Look at 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. It's like, well, Lord, I'm not, I'm not equipped for this. I can't handle all this coming persecution. I'm a spoiled American. Uh, well, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture, the entire Bible, is given by inspiration of God. It's God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine. That's teachings, for reproof, for correction for correcting our heresies, our false teachings, our false ideas, for also correcting our sinful behavior, for instruction in righteousness. So when I want to learn how to live a righteous life, I don't go to Governor Inslee, okay? Governor Inslee says if, you're, if your little kid wants to have a sex change and you're against it, that the government can yank you away from the kids. I'm sorry. I get my instruction in righteousness from King Jesus and his word. I'm not going to bend the knee to any of these people who are trying to get me to deny the one who left the throne room of heaven, became one of us to die on the cross for my sins because he loved me. Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. Your government doesn't love you. Okay? The King Jesus does. You know, Paul says in Romans 8, if God be for us, who can be against us? King Jesus loves us. In the end, that's all that really matters. He'll never leave us or forsake us. But we're given the scriptures, and it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, righteousness. Why? That the man of God, and that means the man of God and the woman of God, may be complete thoroughly equipped for every good work. And part of that good work is enduring suffering. Okay? So you cling to the word of God. This is one of my big complaints about the professors who are training our, our future pastors. They're not clinging to the word of God. Every little chance they get, they water something else down. And we've got to stay true to God's word. Uh, look at 2 Timothy Chapter 2 and verse 15, Paul tells this to Timothy. I think it applies to all of us. Be diligent. That means hardworking. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, accurately interpreting God's word. Okay? This is where Awana got its name, a worker and not ashamed. I want to be a worker and not ashamed. I want to handle accurately the word of God. Oh, but that, that uh, disagrees with academia. Who cares? But that disagrees with our, our government. Hey, look, I'm going to submit to the governing authorities. I'll give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but I'm going to give to God what is God's. And when Caesar wants what's only, what only belongs to God, if Caesar wants worship, he's not going to get that from me. If Caesar says, don't preach Jesus, we're going to preach Jesus just the same. And so we've got to be unashamed workers who work hard studying God's word 
so that we can rightly divide it, that we can understand it accurately, proclaim God's truth. Why? Because let me show you that something's been going on for 2,000 years, and it will go on until King Jesus takes his stand upon the earth. And that's 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2. We're talking about the Word of God, standing fast, holding the traditions taught to us. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, And the things that you heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That doesn't sound like a big deal until you break it down. Paul, Paul says, the things that you heard from me, Timothy. Well, where did Paul get the things that he taught? He got them from Jesus. Okay? So you got Jesus. Okay? Teaches Paul. And then what, what did Paul do? He taught Timothy among many witnesses. So he taught lots of people. And then what did they do? Paul says, well, you need to commit these to faithful men who will then be able to teach others. He's got the first five generations of Christianity covered. And it's an unbroken chain, brothers and sisters. 2,000 years of an unbroken chain of brothers and sisters, many of them martyrs, many of them suffered for doing so. But they stood fast, and they hold, they held to the traditions, the apostolic traditions taught to them, and we need to do the same. We got to preach Jesus in the good days. We got to preach Jesus in the bad days. We got to say, I, I wake up in the morning. I breathe in the morning. I wake up in the morning. I live to preach Jesus in both words and in deeds. And then verses 16 and 17, going back to our passage in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 16. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace. See, God's not saying you're not going to suffer. He's saying, look, you're going to suffer, but I'm giving you hope in the midst of the suffering. Okay. Christians suffer just like the world suffers, just that when we suffer, we don't suffer alone. King Jesus is there with us. And, um, but may God comfort and establish the Thessalonian believers. May God comfort and establish us. He calls Jesus our Lord Jesus Christ. By calling him Lord Koryos in the Greek, that was the number one way to translate Yahweh when the, when the Jews translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. He's saying Jesus is Yahweh. Does Koryos doesn't always mean Yahweh, but when it's applied to Jesus like this, it means Yahweh. And he is the Christ. He is the Jewish Messiah, the one anointed by God to rescue the nation of Israel from her enemies. You think Israel doesn't have enemies right now? No. It's almost impossible to go to a college campus without there being some kind of protest against the Jews right now. But eventually all nations are going to hate the Jews and the Christians, and then all nations are going to invade Israel, and that's when King Jesus comes back. But may God comfort and establish the Thessalonian believers, our Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father. Two of the, two of the three persons of the Trinity, uh, Trinity are mentioned here. If you go back to verse 13, the Holy Spirit is mentioned. So Paul, in one small passage, mentions all three persons of the Trinity. Okay? So that's apostolic teaching. 
That is apostolic teaching that there is only one God, but this God is three distinct equal persons. There used to be a church here that called themselves an apostolic church and said they were teaching the teaching of the apostles and they taught that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all the same person. That's not apostolic tradition. Apostolic tradition, there's only one God. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and they are three distinct, equal, eternal persons. Okay? That goes beyond human understanding how that could be, but that, it is true, is very clear in the Scriptures. And... Um, and then God loved us, Paul says, and gave us everlasting consolation. He promises us suffering and persecution, but not eternal suffering, okay? Not eternal persecution. He's saving us from eternal suffering. So he's promising us everlasting consolation or comfort and good hope. This is why the second coming of Christ is the blessed hope. Titus 2.13, the glorious appearing of our great God, and Savior. And so God loved us and gave us eternal consolation and good hope despite the sufferings. And these are given to us, this, this everlasting comfort and good hope, given to us by grace, Paul says, we did not earn it. You know, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works. Christians don't do good works to get saved. We do good works because we are saved. Good works are the result of salvation, not the cause of salvation. And then in verse 17, comfort your hearts. May God comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Okay. May God comfort your hearts despite the persecution and the sufferings. Okay, um, whether people are pre-trib, mid-trib, pre-wrath, or post-trib, like me, will you think the second coming of Christ is when Christ comes for the church and will go through the trib? Whatever the view, everybody acknowledges the church in America, like all other nations, will suffer. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be trials. Yet, Paul says, may God comfort your hearts. Some of us don't feel comforted by God because we're looking for comfort from the world. You know? Yeah, I could use a little comfort. I'd like to work a little bit less. My back's not holding out. You know, I've been in the workforce since, full-time workforce since I was like 18 or 19. I'm a little bit older than that now. I'm looking for some comfort from the government. They've been taking out so much money for Social Security. When I'm 67, I'm, I'm going to be able to collect on that. Maybe I can work a little bit less on the, at school and stuff like that. I don't know, man. Murphy's Law seems to apply to me in a certain way. So I think when I turn 67, I, I don't think the check's going to show up. I think the whole thing's, the whole Ponzi scheme is going down. And um, so I got to say, hey, look, man, I hope that check is there, but my comfort doesn't come from Uncle Sam. My comfort comes from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And uh, if I got food in my belly, I'm going to praise God and thank him. But if I got an empty belly, I got to praise my king just the same. God, let God comfort your heart. Let God be your comfort 
despite the persecution and the sufferings, okay, so that God would establish you in every good word and in every good work, okay? And, um, you know, we're told in Ephesians 4, verse 15, that we're to speak the truth in love. Even when we witness to non-believers, speak the truth in love. Let, let the Lord be the Lord of your words, okay? Look at Ephesians 4, 29. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4. Verse 29, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. Let God be the Lord of your words. When you speak, speak encouragement into the lives of people. If the person's a godly person, encourage them to be even more godly. If a person's an ungodly person, they profess to be a believer, but they're not living, then, then encourage them to get back on track with King Jesus, okay? But let the Lord be the Lord of your words. Are you, are you the type of person that just tears people down with your words? I used to be. I used to be a manipulator. I used to flatter people. If, guy, if I thought a guy could whoop me, I'd flatter him, and then he'd whoop people for me. And... um, um. No, that is why I tell everybody I see, God bless you and be safe. Because I want the King Jesus to be the Lord of not, not just my thoughts, but my words. But also, may God establish you not just in every word, but in every work. Okay? And we'll close with this. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. I just quoted the first part. For by grace, salvation is a gift from God. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. We receive it through faith, through trusting in Jesus. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Salvation is a free gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. We got no reason to boast. You want what you earn, it's called hell. But Jesus gives us heaven by his grace. But then verse 10, for we are his workmanship. We get our word poem from that. I wake up in the morning. I stagger out of bed. I look at the, myself in the mirror, and the last thing that comes to my mind is poem, work of art, okay? But what am I going to do? Am I going to believe my mirror? Or am I going to believe what the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob says about me in his word? I'm God's workmanship. If you're a believer, you're God's workmanship. You're a new creation in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You realize in eternity past, he not only elected who was going to be saved, but he also foreordained the works of ministry that we would do. He foreknew. Okay, Saul's going to wimp out. King Saul's going to wimp out. David's big brother, Eliab, is going to wimp out. So he foreordained in eternity past, I'm going to take me, a little shepherd boy, and kill a blaspheming Philistine giant named Goliath. 
okay? A um, couple Saturdays ago, I wanted to watch Notre Dame-Clemson. Game was going to start at 9.30, so I made sure I got early enough to McDonald's to get my wholesome breakfast. And, um, uh, but my wife always watches the sausage, egg and cheese McGriddle without the cheese. But if you ask for it without the cheese, they don't give you the egg either. So you, you got you to gotta explain it to them. I want the whole dip, but then take the cheese off, okay? So I had to go inside. I walked into a Bible study of Christian brothers that hadn't seen me for years. Uh, another guy that, that used to come to our church came walking in, needed his car jumped, had to go jump his car. Then I realized the lady's limping really bad, found out she was in a car accident two days earlier and still shows up work at McDonald's. That's what makes America great. And, um, and um, you know, so I'm thinking like at 8.30 when I leave my house, I'm thinking Notre Dame football today, baby. I'm going to sit down on that couch and I'm going to watch Notre Dame football. And God said, no, I've, I've got a different plan for you this morning. And my plan's been there for all eternity. You're going to pray for a lady who was in a traffic accident. You're going to fellowship with some Christian brothers. And you're going to jump somebody's car who hasn't been to church in a long time and knows he should be back in church. God wants to be the Lord of your words, but also the Lord of your works. And he has foreordained, predestined, the works you're going to do today, the works you're going to do tomorrow, and the next day. And, and, and Paul says, look, I'm not lying to you. He's going to be suffering. It's going to get hot in the kitchen. They're going to beat you. They're going to want to kill you. But take comfort, not in your circumstances. Take comfort in your God. He will glorify you. He will complete the work that he started in you. Let him be the Lord of your words. Let him be the Lord of your works. But that will only happen if you stand firm and keep the faith. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, in Jesus' precious name, I thank you, Lord, for the people that are here that, you know, there's nothing fancy that Trinity Bible Fellowship has to offer, but, but by your grace, we preach your word. And there's other churches in Kitsap County and throughout Washington State, throughout America, and throughout the world that still preach your word. And so I thank you for the people that are here. And I pray, Lord, that you prepare us to worship you in the good days and in the bad days. And that you equip us, that you be the, the Lord uh, of our lives, the Lord of our words, the Lord of our speech and the Lord of our deeds, that you would do your work, the work you ordained for us to do, that you prepared beforehand for us to do. You would do that work in our lives, and may we give you the glory, because the only good things we can do, that's the, those are the things that your Holy Spirit can do through us. But help us, Lord. Equip us with your word and with your spirit Equip us 
to stand fast, to stand firm, and to hold to the traditions taught to us by the apostles in your perfect word. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. Well, God bless you, everybody, and I think John's probably got the rules for the potluck. Don't have kids, stay up here. If you have kids, go down and grab them, bring them back up here out of the way, and you can use some men to go down there and help set up tables and chairs. There you go. God bless you, everybody.